You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Hey, Money Nerds. I am really excited for today's topic. On this podcast, you know this, we talk a lot about managing your money, about budgeting, savings accounts, side hustles, all of this kind of stuff. But I don't often, or I guess not often enough, talk about how to grow your money. So that's what I want to share with you today is exactly what to do, give you a blueprint so that you can start to think about growing your money in a different way. So I like to call this the growth phase of our finances. Now the growth phase, our goals are a little bit different than if we are trying to maybe pay off debt or we're trying to just like get it together for the first time ever. So when you're in that growth phase, here are some goals I want you to think through. I want you to start thinking about how you can make your money work for you. How can we get a bigger bang for our buck from our current income streams? So all of that growth phase is a little bit of a different mindset than it is with managing money, paying down debt. Those take a different type of mindset and they're all really important. They all truly do go together. But with this growth phase, there's really three types of income that I want you to think through. The first is earned income. The second is business income, and the third is investment income. So let's get started with the first type of income that pretty much everybody's more familiar with, and that is the investment income. Now, what I'm talking about when I say investment income is is truly when your money makes you money. This is such a key piece because a lot of times, think of it like a savings account. I think this is the most tangible way that people can think about it. If you put your money into a high yield savings account, you're going to earn a little bit of money for just keeping your money in that account and letting it kind of just chill there. So it's a really, really good opportunity. But I think a lot of times people seem to forget that that income over time when it's invested, it compounds even further. And it gets to the point where you officially can retire because your investment income is higher than your working income or your active income. So I think that's a key piece. And that's essentially like, that's when you know you you can retire. A lot of people are kind of curious about that. Like, how do I actually know when I can retire? In the personal finance world, we like to lean on the rule of 25 for this. So what this means is you're going to take your living expenses per year. So think through what would your life look like when you are quote unquote retired or have the ability to step away from work. Maybe your house is paid off. Maybe you have a car. You don't need to finance anything. You might want to travel quite a bit. Maybe like whatever, right? You want to start a really cool garden and that takes money. You're going to think of your lifestyle of that point. So take your living expenses per year and times that by 25. And that's going to give you a rough, and I mean a rough idea of how much of a nest egg you might need. And so that gives you something to work towards. It's kind of like your North Star that you can start to prioritize and say, okay, what can I do to get to this point sooner? If this happens when I'm 65, cool. If it happens when I'm 35, cool. Ultimately, what I want you to try to reframe your your mindset around is that retirement is not an age. 
It is simply a number. And if you know that, then that makes a lot of sense on why people often retire early or how they can even do that. It's because of that amount. Their income is essentially replaced by growth of their stocks and their investments. And a lot of people ask, like, when should I be investing in the stock market? Because this is so scary and it it does feel a little bit intimidating. But what I want you to remember is that there was this study called the Dalbar study, and this was all about investing. And so what the study did is it looked at people who invested regularly in the stock market. Those that invested regularly in the stock market saw an average return of 7.7%. But here's the kicker. If you missed the 10 best days of investing, then your return dropped by over half. So you're probably like, well, shoot, how do I make sure I don't miss those 10 best days? Like, I don't want to lose half of my returns. And that's kind of the point. We don't really know when the best days are for investing. Anybody that tells you that they know they can predict like what the market's going to do is feeding you a load of crap. Like nobody can predict this stuff. That's why it's so hard to anticipate and predict what's happening. We don't know when those 10 best days are. And so because of that, that's why it's so important that we are really diligent about investing consistently. And I should say too, consistently, yes, but also having this mindset of investing for the long term instead of for the short run. I do believe anything less than five years is generally not an investment account. Like that's not really something where five years is kind of tough to predict. And so most of the time, if you're investing for like midterm goals or like longer term goals or retirement, you really, really want to adopt that mindset of like, just let it sit there and let it grow over time. And so that's where this whole concept of like compound interest comes in. So we don't know when the best days are for investing, but a lot of people I realize don't quite understand compound interest. So let's break this down. I'm going to treat you like a kindergartner for a second. And I hope this doesn't offend you, but I, my brain has to work this way where I'm like, okay. Teach it to me like I'm five, and if I can get it like that, then I'm probably okay. So for compound interest, what this means is let's say you have $1, you just $1. You're going to invest this dollar into an investment account that pays you 10% it is as the return, okay? So you're going to earn 10%. So at the end of year one, we have $1 times 10% or we $1.10. So we earn 10 cents, right? And then year two, we leave that money alone. And we have $1.10 now as our starting balance times another 10%. So now we have at the end of year two, $1.21. Now I know this isn't sexy. People are like, cool, 21 cents. But here's the thing. That's the power of compound interest. You earn 21 cents for doing nothing. Your money legitimately just grew for you just being patient and letting it sit there and do its thing. Now, yes, a dollar is not that exciting to look at, but imagine if that was $10,000 or $100,000 or $1 million. Now you can see that that interest and that growth means a heck of a lot more. And so I think it's really important to understand that concept because it takes about 20 years for your interest to really start to grow. So your investments to, for it to take a significant growth turn, it's going to take about 20 years. And if you know that as a sophisticated investor, you can just sit back and say, you know what? I'm in this for the long haul. I've got 20 years. I'm going to be just fine. Now let's break this down into a chart that when I first saw this, I think I was in high school, I maybe 16, I don't recall exactly, but I saw this compound interest chart and you guys, it changed my life. 
Sounds cheesy, but it really did. I was like, holy crap, this is incredible. So I'm going to break down two examples and these names are not used to be offensively or it's just examples. Okay. So we have Carol and we have Linda. Now, Carol started to learn about personal finance early on. Her parents talked about money. She read books about money. It was just not something that was taboo in her family. So because of that, Carol knew that she could start investing very early on and really make a big difference in her life. So from age 19 years old until 27 years old, Carol invested $2,000 every single year. Now, $2,000 is a lot of money. For that age group, it really is kind of tough. If you think about when you were 19, getting a $2,000 bill would have probably set you into credit card debt. So I'm not saying this, that this is like an easy thing to do, but I do believe with some side hustles and to really like focus on this, if this is a goal of yours, I do believe it's possible. I think it's hard, but I think it's possible. So from age 19 to 27, Carol invests $2,000. She invests a total of $18,000 in that time period. And then she stops completely stops. No more investing, just sitting back and not doing a single thing more. Now, Linda, on the other hand, was like, I cannot afford to even buy my groceries right now. I don't, I just don't have enough money. So I am not able to afford to start investing until I'm 27 years old. So then from 27 all the way until Linda is 65 years old, she invests $2,000 every single year, a total of $78,000. Now, with the power of compound interest, this is where stuff gets a little bit crazy. So remember, Carol only invested $18,000, but she didn't invest anything else from 27 to 65. She just let her money grow and compound over time. Again, 10% rate of return is what we're we're talking about here, which a lot of people are like, is that even realistic? That's like the S&P 500. That tends to be the average there. So all of that growth and compounding from $18,000 grew to $1,117,449 by the time she's 65. Now, Carol, remember, Carol invested $78,000. She started at 27, invested all the way to 65. She invested very consistently and diligently that entire period of her life. She, by the time she gets to 65, because of compounding interest, has still a respectable $883,185. So $800,000, almost $900,000. It's a ton of money. It still is. Both Linda and Carol, I would say kick butt. Like that's a pretty great investment that truly is a good nest egg. Now, is that enough? I don't know. Who knows, right? It depends on their quality of life. It depends on so many different factors, their health. There's so many things that come into this, but ultimately this illustrates that compounding interest. This is why it's so key that you start early. Now, a lot of people are like, great, Whitney, I'm 32 years old. I haven't even started yet. Like that, that is okay. The important piece is that you start soon because if you start as soon as you possibly can, you still have the time for that to grow and compound over time. I really do believe it's never too late to start investing, but I do believe it is important that you prioritize it and make it something that has to happen, treat it like a tax. And then a lot of people too, they, they try to like time the market. Have you noticed this? It's, it's always like the market's going to drop. Everything's going crazy. 
we just need to wait it out and then we can invest more money and our money's going to grow and it's going to be great. The people that lose almost consistently are the ones that try to time the market. I want you to remember it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. This matters so much. And so you want to make sure that you're letting that compounding interest do its thing and just putting your money into your investments. When the market goes up and it goes down and it goes all kinds of craziness, you sit back and you stay relaxed because you know you are a long-term investor and it's time in the market that counts most. And so a lot of times people ask too, like, where do I even get started with investing? Like, what's the best account? I know there's IRAs, there's 401ks, there's 403bs, like there's all kinds of different retirement style options. So where do I actually get started? There's two that I want to focus on. There's employer-sponsored retirement accounts. These are your 401ks, 403bs, 457s. It's ones where your job is matching some type of contribution, ideally matching. They don't always, but usually they do. And then the second one is called an IRA, which stands for an individual retirement arrangement. It's just a way for the government to know how to tax that money. So first and foremost, what I want you to do is make sure that you are taking advantage of your employer-sponsored retirement plans first, your 401ks. This is truly free money. Now, if you're self-employed like me, this isn't an option. There's other options for self-employed people, but if you're like me, then you're probably going to be focusing more on your IRAs, or you could go talk to your CPA and see what style of solo 401k, SCP, IRA, what's the best type of retirement plan for you as a self-employed person. But we're going to assume that I'm talking to people that do have this available to them. So that 401k is truly free money. And I want you to make sure that you are at least getting that free money at a bare minimum. I don't really tend to recommend, and again, I'm not a financial advisor. This is just my own personal two cents and some good best practices. I don't recommend putting more into your 401k because typically the fees are a little bit high. They do tend to be a little bit spendy, but the free money, it's hard to beat that match. And so that's why we always recommend starting in personal finance with that, that free money. So you're going to invest enough to get your free money. And then when you get that cap, now you're going to move over to your IRAs. So your IRAs, there's two different types. There's a Roth IRA and traditional IRA. A traditional IRA functions like a traditional 401k. So not a Roth 401k, just a regular 401k. With a 401k or a traditional IRA, any money that you invest into that account, when you put that money into that account, essentially you get a tax deduction. So you're getting a tax deduction today, which is fantastic if you're higher income tax bracket, right? But the other side of that is when you go to sell your stocks and withdraw money from that account when you go to live on that actual income, you're going to pay taxes then. So it's tax deferred when you're doing a 401k or a traditional IRA. All of that money is going to grow and compound and that's fantastic. But when you withdraw it, you're going to pay regular income tax on that money if it's under an IRA. Now, if you're under a Roth IRA, this is such a cool account because it actually allows your investments, if you're underneath that Roth umbrella, to grow tax-free. Now, this is huge, right? So if you think about it, what happens here is a little bit different than the traditional. With the traditional, you get a tax deduction. With a Roth, you're investing with after-tax dollars, a fancy way of saying whatever your paycheck is, when you get your paycheck and you go invest money underneath your Roth, then essentially 
that's money's already been taxed. So the government's not going to tax that again. So all of that money grows and compounds and does its thing over time. And when you sell that stock and you start to, to survive off of that, you don't pay taxes at all because you chose to pay taxes today. So really, this is just a more complicated way of saying it depends on when you want to pay taxes. This stuff can get very sophisticated. It doesn't have to, but it certainly can. And so what I want you to remember is if you have access to a Roth IRA, because there's certain income limitations to this too, not everybody can access a Roth IRA. Put your money into that. Let it grow and compound if you do qualify for that. As of now, you can invest $6,500 into these different accounts, which is great. And it's not Roth and traditional, it's combined $6,500. So that's the rule of thumb there. So that's how we're going to start to view that stuff. So get your free match, get your free money from the 401k, and then turn to your IRAs and fund those up to $6,500 if you can. Now, remember, we're still on the topic of investing income as a way to grow your money. And so let's talk about two different types of investments that you're probably going to come across. And this is where things get confusing. People understand IRAs, they get 401ks, but when it comes to choosing where your money actually goes, we kind of have a panic attack. It feels confusing. It feels overwhelming. It feels like you're just going to mess everything up. And trust me, you're not going to mess this up unless you put all of your money into crypto you're probably going to be fine. So there's lots of different ways to approach this, but there's two that I want you to really think through. This is actively managed versus passively managed funds. But before I go into too much detail on that, what I want you to understand is what a fund exactly is. So let's pretend you have three eggs. I know, very original example, right? You have three eggs. Do you prefer to have three eggs in one singular basket Or do you prefer to have one egg in three different baskets? Or would you prefer to have three different baskets with one egg in each of those? Now, from a risk standpoint, let's just put on our risk cap for a second. Which one seems riskier? All three of your eggs in one basket or dividing it out into three different baskets? Now, from a risk standpoint, obviously we want three different baskets. So if you are, I don't know, you're walking around, you drop one of your baskets and your egg breaks, you still have two more. You're, you're okay. But if you dropped your one basket and all three eggs are in there, you might have broken all three, right? Like this is diversification. This is a huge financial concept and it's very, very important when it comes to your investing. This is where funds come into play. A fund is simply a collection of stocks in one singular place. So it's instead of going to buy Apple and like Chevron and I'm forgetting all my companies here, Micron and Dutch bros, whatever, right? Like all of the different stocks, instead of going and buying each of those individual ones, you can purchase one singular fund. And in that fund, it has a ton of different stocks. So it's going to have all of those included. So when you make one purchase, you get all of that stuff, which is really fantastic as an investor. So here's where I want you to be really careful. And this is where we're going back to this active versus passively managed funds, because this matters so much. An actively managed fund 
is really comes down to how many hands do you have in this pot? So think about a fund this way. Funds are very expensive to run. Of course, like it it takes a lot of management. It takes a lot of operations. You have some person with a very fancy title that's sitting here and moving stocks all day long into the fund. If something goes bad, they manually sell that. They add a new company. So it's very hands-on. Now, because it's very hands-on, that tends to mean that it's also very expensive. It's not passive. It's very active and active, anything active is actually much more expensive. And so because of that, I really want you to be comfortable in understanding what the fees are. The fees matter significantly. I think we get sometimes a little bit confused when it comes to investing because we will hear investment terms and fees and immediately think that it may not be that much money. So if I said an investment has 1% fee, you may not think it's that much, right? You might be like, oh, 1%, that's that's pretty low. But I want you to like reframe this into a different way. So let's say you invested some money into an account. You invested $100,000 and that grows for 25 years and you're earning about 6%. So after 25 years at 6%, your $100,000, if you have no fees attached to it, okay, no costs at all, your earnings are 330,000. So again, let me tell you these numbers one more time. 25 years, 6%, you invested 100,000. After 25 years with no fees, you now have $330,000. So now let's add just 2% of fees into this. You still invest 100,000, you still let it sit for 25 years, you still earn 6%. The only difference is that you paid 2% in fees. That 2% in fees, it costs you $170,000. Your earnings are $160,000. So that's how much you earned. Do you see the difference here? 2% of fees ate away 40% of your portfolio. That is why everybody in personal finance is always like griping on watch the fees. It's because it is incredibly expensive. Even 1% of fees can eat away about 30% of your growth. That's a ton of money. So here's the terminology I want you to look out for when you're making investment choices. I want you to look at expense ratios. This is fund operating costs. I also want you to look at front end load fees. This is a fee when you actually purchase and then back-end load fees are a fee when you sell, and then there's often sales charges. So these are all the fees to pay attention to, and sometimes they're a little bit buried, but if you are working with a financial advisor that's managing your portfolio, you can ask directly about this, and they will give that to you. They're very upfront, they're very transparent, and actually I find most advisors are quite helpful when it comes to this stuff, but if you are kind of more of a DIY investor like I am, this is all the stuff that I'm looking for when I'm making an investment choice. Now this is all with within actively managed funds. And so that's where I really do like different approaches. I like more of the passively managed funds personally, because the passively managed funds are a lot less expensive. We're talking a difference of like 1% compared to a passively managed fund would be like 0.025%. Like we're talking hardly anything. And so this is where you will have index funds exchange traded funds, ETFs, 
that's where this stuff comes into play. Now, these will also have some type of fee attached to it, but it's not nearly as expensive as some of the actively managed funds. And so it's very, very key that you just know what your money's getting invested into, what the fees are that are attached. And if you're not really sure, then I would go over to Fidelity. I would look at Vanguard. I would start to get really educated on the terminology, the lingo. They have really good resources on both of those websites. I think even Charles Schwab has some good ones too. And if you're still confused, the book that I often recommend is The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. I think this is such a fantastic book about investing, and it's one that I find I recommend almost most often these days when it comes to investing. So this is the strategy that I personally use. I will put my money into a Roth IRA. I will actually physically go purchase my investments because a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA is not an investment. It's just a way for the government to know how that money should be taxed. So when you move that money from your checking account into your IRA and it's kind of chill in there, you need to go take that extra step to actually go purchase your investments, in this case, your funds. And so that's why it's so, so key to do this. So if you're just getting started, I really like, I do all of my investing through Vanguard. That's just who I'm with right now. And I enjoy the most VTI, which is the total stock market. So it's literally all 3,945 stocks that are traded. I have a little portion of all of those stocks when I make one purchase. And I also really like VOO, which is the S&P 500. So those are just not financial advice. I just know people are often curious about what do I invest my money in? And when I first got started into investing, I did have a financial advisor. The fees were way too high. And so I ended up moving all of my money over to Betterment, which is a robo-advisor. And so that's where I did that for a little bit because it's a little bit of handholding until I built up my confidence to DIY my own investing and make my own decisions. And so it's really not too difficult, but it is very important that you start to get comfortable with the terminology and the lingo, even if you have somebody that's managing your money for you. Do not let yourself get ripped off. You want to make sure you're watching those fees because those fees compound. And like in that example, you will lose a ton of money if you're not paying attention to that. Okay, so that was a deep dive into increasing your income through investing income. So now let's talk about another form of income, which is your earned income. Your earned income is a fancy way of saying your job, your active income. You go to work, you work nine to five or whatever your shift is, you get paid, you get a consistent paycheck. That is your earned income. Now, this is so key because your earned income, even if you don't love your job, your job is still your single greatest wealth building tool. It is the thing that can move the needle the most. But I see a lot of people just get into jobs. They get kind of stuck, a little bit complacent. There's a lot of studies and research that show that you should, if you're trying to optimize for your earnings, you need to like move companies every two years, which to me sounds so dang stressful. I'm like a lifer. When I find something that I enjoy, I stick around for probably way too long. That is most definitely my toxic trait is that I will not leave jobs even when I should because I get too damn committed. <laughs> so do as I say, not as I do. If you want to earn more money every two years is when you will jump ship, find something different. And then when you do jump ship and you do find something different, you want to make the most out of your earned income by negotiating. Negotiating is how you optimize how much you make. It's a really 
uncomfortable thing. It's very like, I, I get it. I see it all the time with my coaching clients that approach new jobs. It is super uncomfortable because it's not something that we do on a daily basis. Well, we do negotiate on a daily basis, but we don't feel like the stakes are quite as high on a daily basis until it's like salary dang- dangling in front of us. And it just gets, it gets freaking overwhelming. So I, I get it. But there's one thing that I want you to remember too. So if you're early on into your career or you're doing a career shift, this is so key because I think a lot of times we will sometimes have this like sense of entitlement and it's not our fault. I think it's like all of the messaging is telling us, you know, we need to go in there, guns a blazing, ask for as much as we, we possibly can. But I want you to remind yourself that your salary is based on your value in the marketplace. You as an individual are amazing. I think you're worth a million bucks. In the marketplace, I don't know, right? It depends on your skills. It depends on your credentials, your certifications. It depends on your years of experience. Like there's so many factors that go into this that sometimes it can be a bit discouraging when you get into a new career and you're just getting started, maybe just graduated college and they offer you a much lower salary. But when you do your research, that might be truly what it's worth at the time. And so that's not a bad thing. It's it's important to take that experience, get as much as you can from it, leverage it, have your company pay for credentials, different certifications if they will. Make yourself more valuable so that you can take all of those skills to a new role in the company or to a new job entirely in a different company. But I do think it is important, even if they offer you a lesser salary than you prefer, that you still negotiate. This is so key. And here's what you're going to need to negotiate. You need data on what your job is actually worth. There's two sites that I tend to go to, actually three. One is salary.com. One is glassdoor.com. And then there's an app called Fishbowl that's kind of a newer one. I really like it because it's a more like, think like social media meets LinkedIn. So a little bit more intimate than LinkedIn, but it's where you can anonymously post questions, ask questions about companies, share salary. Like it's a really cool way to go. If you're going into a new industry, especially like corporations or technology industry, that's where you're going to find a lot of this information. So I do like fishbowl for that too. So you're going to need all of that data on what your job is actually worth. And then we're going to have to back it up with proof of your performance. So we want to see facts, stats, emails, details of additional jobs that you've taken on. The best way that I find to do this is to have a Google doc and have it kind of like an ongoing thing. Anytime you take on a new project or anytime you get some type of compliment for going above and beyond, what you're going to do is you're going to take that. You're going to very easily, not easily, sometimes it's hard, but you're going to try to quantify this percentage of revenue increased number of email subscribers increased. Any type of growth is usually really good. That's the kind of stuff that I want you to think through. So you're going to put that directly onto this little Google doc and just collect it over time. So then when you find a job that you're really excited about, you can just copy and paste that over to your resume and make it fit for the job description, of course, but it's a little bit better way to go. So you have proof of your performance. You have data on what the job is actually worth. And then you have to go practice. 
do not let this be a fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing. If you do, what I promise is you're going to leave money on the table or you're going to come across as like a total creeper. That's super awkward. You're probably not a super awkward person, but if you're very uncomfortable asking for what you want, which most people are, especially women, then you need to practice this role play, go through the lingo over and over again. But ultimately I want you to ask for more than you are comfortable with within the range of course, like don't go in if the range is 35,000 to 50 and you're like, I want 200,000, like you're not going to get the job, but ask for more than you're comfortable with, because I promise you, you're probably undershooting Anyways, the other tip I have with negotiation is to never throw out a number first. This is something that's very difficult because sometimes before you receive an offer, they will directly ask you, the the hiring manager will say, hey, what's your salary expectation? How much do you earn at your current job? Something of that type, right? Your job is to never throw out a number first, at least prematurely. In that stage of the conversation, until you have an offer letter in front of you, you don't want to throw out a number because it can really bite you in the foot. The other thing too is when you get that offer letter and you're really excited I want you to start to just get comfortable asking for more. Don't just take the first offer. They're probably not going to revoke your offer. I have heard some crazy stories where that happens. In my opinion, if somebody revokes your offer because you asked for more money within a, a quantified range, that's like actually not a crazy range then they are being super unreasonable. And that's probably not a company that you want to work at because you're going to get into this position and you're going to get stuck. Like if you're having a hard enough time getting a salary increase and negotiating your salary from the beginning, good luck when you're in the company and you're trying to negotiate more money later, it's going to be next to impossible. So anyway, that's just my, my tangent for a second. So let's go through a real life example of what this could look like. Let's say you have a $50,000 salary offer. This is, they sent you the offer letter. They're committed. They like you. And $50,000 is what they, they offered you. So here's the cost of not negotiating every year. You know how you get that little cost of cost of living, like adjustment where it's 3% or 4%. It's typically about 3% just to keep up with inflation. Not all companies offer this, but some do. So let's assume you didn't negotiate and you're going to stay in this job for five years, $50,000 times 3%. At the end of year one, you've got 51,500. So that becomes your new salary. Now year two times it by another 3%, you're going to have $53,045. Year three, so do you see how this is just adding on top? You get a raise based off of your base salary. At the end of year five, you are now officially at the very end at $57,963. That is your salary after five years of just getting that traditional 3% raise. Now, here's the crazy thing. Let's say you just put your big girl pants on. You said, I'm just going to negotiate as much as I can. I'm going to, I'm going to be uncomfortable, but my experience and my credentials, I think I'm worth more. So you send an email and you say, I am so grateful for this job offer. Thank you so much. I've really loved learning about the company. I'm so excited to contribute in a meaningful way based off of my research, my credentials, and my five years of experience. I actually believe that a salary would be more on par with about $57,000. So you send that email, you're sweating bullets. They come back and they usually say, sure which immediately should trigger something for you. 
You maybe asked for too little, right? Like anytime people immediately say yes, it's probably not enough money, but that's okay. You start now at 57,000. Again, you now just got that 3% cost of living adjustment every year on top of that as well. So let's run that math all the way through five years, assuming you stay at that company for five years, but you did negotiate and your salary is now 57,000 at the end of five years, just from the normal cost of living adjustments, your salary at the end of five years will be $66,077. Do you see this? This is huge. That is a total lost income of $38,277 over five years, because you just didn't negotiate, you didn't take that extra step and just ask for a slight bit more money. That's the power of negotiation. And that's why I want you to really take this seriously, be uncomfortable, that is okay. But make sure that you are trying to negotiate a higher salary based off of data, you can give them the range based off of your credentials, your proof, of actually being able to accomplish things within a company, that stuff is going to help you get more money. And that is how you can start to negotiate more. So that's how you can start to build up this third income stream, which is optimizing your earned income. And now we are on to my favorite portion of the income streams, and that's the business income. Now, this is a third income stream that I truly believe almost everybody should have. I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's a really important one. And I think that's where side hustles really come into play. Now, a side hustle is a different type of income because it's not a W-2 job, most likely. So you're not going to be paid a consistent amount. Like it's normally going to be something where you're earning a little extra on the side. But the cool thing about a lot of side hustles is it's a form of business income, which means you can write off expenses. So this is a tax strategy that you can use as well. But there's two reasons that I typically recommend people have side hustles. It's because one, you just get to make extra money. You can invest more, you can take sweet vacations, you can buy properties, like you can do whatever the heck you want when you have a little extra income. The second reason is because you learn new skills. New skills equate to higher earned income. So you can take those skills to make career shifts and pivot and try something different and have some proof of like, Hey, here's what I've tried and here's what worked. And I can bring this exact experience to your company as well. It's a huge thing that can be leveraged in multiple ways. And there's lots of different side hustles out there. I think some of the ones that I've personally tried that I have enjoyed for different reasons was I've tried Uber Eats. I've tried DoorDash. I've done Instacart. I do Amazon Flex. I still do this today. I think it's kind of fun. I love flipping furniture. I do real estate investing where I build unique quirky properties. I have an Etsy shop and consulting is something that I've done. And honestly, I kind of enjoyed it too. I think consulting is a really good opportunity for a lot of working professionals that are well into their career or have certain areas of expertise. I think it can be a good way to go. But let's talk a little bit about like how much can you actually make off of business income? So I'm going to pick on furniture flipping for a second. I talk about that a lot on this podcast because I think it is such a killer way to go. And it really does teach you how to get listings noticed, how to negotiate. It does all of these things, which kind of circle back to increasing your income in every single area. And so I've bought 
little outdoor patio sets where I bought it from a thrift store for $40. I did nothing to it, but took a picture, sold it for $200. I've bought a table and chairs at an auction for $25.52. I sold that for $90, which is way too cheap. I know this now. That's when I was first getting started. I've bought chairs that were kind of like a cool bent wood look for $16. I sold those for 60. Like all of this stuff really makes a big difference because I find that so often a little extra cash, even an extra $500 for most people is kind of game changing. If you use it the right way too, it can be life changing. If you invest that $500, dude, it's going to be a totally different life. And so I find so often the thing that holds us back is that we just don't know where to start. It just feels so overwhelming. We have our normal jobs. You might have kids, you might be married, you have friends, you have family, you have working out, you've got like all this crap that you already feel like you have to juggle that sometimes it does feel overwhelming to just get started. So I'm going to make this so easy for you. If you want to make money, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start by looking around your house, take inventory of what you no longer use, what isn't really that important to you. Just make a note of that. Take a good picture of that item. And I want you to go list that on Facebook marketplace today. If you don't know what to list it for, do a quick search on Facebook Marketplace and see what are similar items listed for. List it, and I promise you, if you do this, you will make some money. I don't know how quickly, it kind of just depends on the quality of the items, but you can definitely do this. I actually have a coaching client that was telling me over the weekend she listed a bunch of things and had earned $700 from just listing stuff around her house that she wasn't using. So I think it's a killer way to go. And it's a very easy way to get started. Now, if you need like immediate income, like you have already listed everything around your house, you just, you need a little extra cash. The ones that I tend to recommend most often is Uber Eats, DoorDash, Instacart, and Amazon Flex. Now these are all on demand delivery, but I like them because you can truly do it when you're available. So let me give you an example. If you did Uber Eats or DoorDash and you just did Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night from 4 to 9 p.m., I've tested this and this holds true. You can make about $500 per month. That's like on top of all of your gas and everything, right? Like your your profit is about 500 bucks per month if you do this. Now with Instacart, this is really cool too. When I was doing Instacart pretty consistently, I was averaging about 20 bucks per hour. And with Amazon Flex, which is a totally, I've done podcast episodes on this on Instagram. I talk about it a lot, so I'm not going to like go into too much detail here, but I find if you're doing a couple shifts of Amazon Flex per week, you will easily make about $500 per month in extra income. Now, why I shared this with you is because we've talked about three different income streams that will help you grow your money. There's the earned income, the investment income, and the business income. If you start to view your growing of your money in those three different categories, what I can promise you is that you will see some fantastic progress. You're going to look back and be so grateful that you took that step. Growing your wealth, it doesn't need to be hard. It can actually be quite simple. You just have to start today with what you have. All right, guys, that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, do me the biggest favor and leave a five-star review. Let me know what stood out to you from this episode. And more importantly, come say hi to me on Instagram. 
Tell me what you're going to be taking action on and just let me know you're listening in. I always love connecting with you. It means so much to me. And I'm so grateful that you listen to this podcast. Thanks so much. I will see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds Podcast. Bye.